We're not crazy, the system is. Tune in to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, Wednesdays 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on Pacifica Affiliate WXOJLPFM 103.3 Valley Free Radio. Produced by Freedom Center and the Icarus Project. Streaming live, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Thanks for tuning in to Madness Radio. I'm your host, Will Hall. And today we're going to be interviewing Dr. Philip Thomas, who is a psychiatrist uh, calling us from England. And he does a lot of work around the globalization of psychiatry and uh, psychiatry as a form of neo-colonialism towards uh, non-Western cultures. So we're going to be talking uh, with Phil about that and about his book, uh, Post-Psychiatry, Mental Health in a Postmodern World. But first, um, a few things about the Freedom Center and the Icarus Project, who are the co-producers of Madness Radio. Freedom Center is a local Northampton, Massachusetts support, advocacy, and activism group. And we are run by and for people who have different mental health labels like schizophrenia and uh, bipolar. We have a lot of different um, classes and groups and services that we offer. We do protests and educational uh, work. We do a lot of peer counseling and community support. So check out our website, which is freedom-center.org. And Madness Radio is also co-produced by the Icarus Project, which is an international network, uh, mostly in the U.S. and mostly online, although there are a growing number of local groups around the country that are connected to the Icarus Project. And it's people who are looking for um, ways of understanding and connecting around um, extreme states, experiences, experiences that get labeled bipolar and schizophrenia beyond the medical model, beyond mainstream psychiatric understanding, seeing what people go through as dangerous gifts to be taken care of rather than suppressed or controlled or eliminated. So check out the Icarus Project website, which is theicarusproject.net. So it's my great pleasure to be introducing um, Dr. Phil Thomas. Um, Phil is an old friend and has been a longtime ally and supporter of the survivor uh, movement. So I'll just read Phil's uh, bio here. Philip Thomas is professor of philosophy, diversity, and mental health in the Institute for Philosophy, Diversity, and Mental Health at the Center for Ethnicity and Health in the University of Central Lancashire. He is also chair of Sharing Voices Bradford, a community development project working with Bradford's black and minority ethnic communities. After working as a full-time consultant psychiatrist in the NHS for over 20 years, He left clinical practice in 2004 to focus on writing and academic work. His academic interests include philosophy, post-structuralism, and critical theory, and their application to psychiatry, especially social and cultural psychiatry, psychology, and medicine. He is also interested in narrative and the moral and ethical problems of representation in medicine and literature. Um, Phil is particularly interested in the practical values of narrative in recovery from psychosis. He has developed alliances with survivors of psychiatry, service users, and community groups locally, nationally, and internationally, and is well known for the column he wrote with his colleague Pat Bracken in Open Mind magazine called Post Psychiatry. He is a founding member and co-chair of the Critical Psychiatry Network in Britain and has published well over 100 scholarly papers. Free Association Books published his first book, Dialectics of Schizophrenia, in 1977. His second book, Voices of Reason, Voices of Insanity, written with Ivan Ludar, and published by Brunner Rutledge in April 2000, 
examine the different meanings attached to the experience of hearing voices over 2,500 years of Western culture. Oxford University Press recently published Phil's third book, Post Psychiatry, co-authored with Pat Bracken in, in uh, 2005. Phil, thanks a lot for uh, joining us today on Madness Radio. My, my pleasure. So I'm really interested in talking with you about um, the general issues of um, globalization in psychiatry and what sort of the pharmaceutical industry and the medical model has in store for uh, countries beyond uh, North America and um, Europe. Sure. I mean, the first thing to say is this is really an enormous issue and it, it made rather than just going straight into the historical background to this because there's been there's been some really excellent um, uh, erudite and um, scholarly examinations of this whole issue by various people it might be helpful if I just talk for a moment about my own experience um, a few years ago um, I can't remember which year it was I think it was 2003 I was fortunate enough to, uh, or, or unfortunate enough, depending upon your point of view, to attend the World Psychiatric Association meeting in Yokohama in Japan. Fortunate because I'd never been to Japan before and I was completely bowled over by the people and its culture. Uh, but unfortunate for, for my first experience of it to be this huge ex exhibition center in um, in Yokohama where the psychiatrists from all over the world were gathering and there was there was a huge before you could get to any of these sort of meeting venues in this enormous conference center there was a, an enormous exhibition hall where the world's best and greatest pharmaceutical industries were parading their worlds I mean uh, their were their wares I, just I mean this may sound grandiose but just imagine it for one moment, that, that amazing bit in the New Testament where Jesus goes into the temple and, uh, <laughs> and sees all the tables of the usurers. I mean, that was the sort of image. Wow. I, 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 I I'm not being grandiose, and perhaps, perhaps people think I am, but I, just for a moment, I wished I was wearing white robes and a pair of sandals rather than <laughs> the food. Uh, but that was the sort of, um, you know, coming from a, a, a Christian sort of background, that, that was the sort of image that came into my mind about where this was all at. Um, uh, but these drug companies were not just present in terms of their physical embodied presence, but they were also there, um, had a very visible presence in terms of setting the academic and research agendas that many of the psychiatrists were then up to following. So that, for example, they'd, they'd been very actively involved in organizing a number of symposia. I can't remember the names of these things, but the sorts of things were um, depression and, and anxiety where East meets West, um, um, and probably completely inappropriately named things like um, culture and psychiatry um, uh, looks at schizophrenia in South Asia or Southeast Asia. And, and in fact, when you, when you looked at what was going on at these things, they were really nothing more than a, a, a neat way for the industry of promoting the idea that forms of distress and forms of uh, alienation that in the West we would identify today in terms of depression or anxiety or even schizophrenia 
have to be so labeled and identified in non-Western cultures. And um, it seems to me that um, there's only one set of interests that's being served by that crude way of finessing our experiences, and that is the global interests of the pharmaceutical industry. Why do I say that? Um, Quite simply, because there is now a lot of evidence. If you you look at the outcome studies of the the World Health Organization's um, international pilot studies of schizophrenia that was, were conducted in the 1970s and more recently the, um, the, the follow-on study that was, I think, undertaken in 12 different countries. And, and well, these were sort of very well-designed um, scientific studies by doctors, epidemiologists, psychologists. They got all the world experts and authorities together Uh, to design the study, to implement it, and to interpret the results, to analyze the data and then interpret and write it all up. Uh, But if you looked at those studies that were specifically designed to compare the incidence and the prevalence and outcome of schizophrenia in, if we can use the expressions broadly, economically advantaged countries like Denmark and America and Britain, with economically disadvantaged countries like Nigeria, um, Sri Lanka, um, and um, I think they and, and India, uh, that if you if you compare the outcome of schizophrenia in so-called advanced with so-called developing countries, uh, the outcome of schizophrenia was actually better in the poorer countries. Uh, and f- from that, um, a number of people now have concluded, well, actually, there's perhaps something that's quite harmful or damaging about biomedical interpretations of psychosis, especially um, when, these are, when these are exported to, to countries where these concepts of schizophrenia are alien and um, don't feature at all. Now, is, so, sorry. Is, is it, is it, um, what are the possible different factors that play into this? Because I know one of the questions is sort of like cultural understandings of what uh, schizophrenia is and the idea of how do you have a stable, clear kind of object of uh, discussion when we're talking about schizophrenia across, across cultures. And I guess another, another question factoring into that would be just the differences in terms of... Um, you know, the way that communities are responding to people um, who are, um, you know, in these kind of states of of distress and they end up getting into hospital situations in the West and then in in other countries they never even really enter into the mental health system. Mm -hmm. I I think that's absolutely right. And I think those are two broad areas. There are probably three or four broad areas um, where you can say this is, uh, where you, that may be helpful in understanding why it is um, a condition like schizophrenia appears to have a better outcome in economically disadvantaged countries than it does in economically advantaged countries. Uh, The first is that one has to ask is to step back from all this and say, well, what is the relevance of the concept of schizophrenia in non-Western cultures? The word is peculiarly it's a Greek neologism. It's a word that was invented in 1911 by a Swedish, uh, sorry, a Swiss psychiatrist, Eugen Bleuler, um, who, who brought together two Greek words to, to explain, to, to, to try and delineate this 
category of distress, schizophrenia, split mind or split psyche. And um, the first thing that one has to say is that, and, and I won't even attempt to go into the sort of philosophical arguments behind this, but there are serious problems about translating words that are rooted in, in the concepts and values and belief systems of one culture over into another culture. I mean, that's, that's just one whole set of issues. Um, there's another whole set of issues which is partially related to that, and, and that is the whole notion of uh, Western notions of um, distress and madness that have been evolved into concepts like schizophrenia presuppose a whole set of assumptions about the nature of the self that is being spoken about, about the nature of the relationship between self and society and culture. Uh, and in, in the West, we have a, a peculiarly, uh, when you compare, let's say, with South Asian or with African cultures, the notion of the self that is being spoken about here is, is quite different. In the West, we think of the individualized, interiorized self. We think of the self that sort of somehow, um, uh, uh, like the noble hero, um, cut off from other Selves, it's cut off from society, that's cut off from community. The whole, the whole of Western psychology and psychiatry functions upon the assumption that the self can best be understood in terms of internal processes in the inner mind. This is what anthropologists tell us. Uh, whereas in South Asian cultures or African cultures, there's a very different notion of the self that applies, a self that's defined much more closely in terms of ties and moral duties to society, to culture, to family, to faith tradition, uh, and that, 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 that isn't thought of in this sort of individualized, interiorized, this little box view of the mental world of the individual that we have in the West. So that those, those sorts of notions are really important to take into account when we, we look at what, what we call schizophrenia in, in Western cultures and compare it with uh, the sorts of equivalent, if there are, levels of distress in non-Western cultures. And then that, Thirdly, um, sorry. Um, and I was saying that that comes back to what you were saying before about the, the fact that people end up doing better in those cultures when they have similar kinds of experiences. That the, uh, that uh, the, absolutely, absolutely. Well, this ties into the point that you were making, I think, about um, the relationship between the individual and the society or culture in which the individual is found. It's impossible. Uh, we don't think, we don't particularly consider that to be important in the West. If we do, it's only important insofar as we can measure it, um, measure things like stigma. We can measure things like um, social exclusion or isolation, but we don't actually look at what it means in real practical terms. And of course, what it means in real practical terms in non-Western cultures is that there are very different ways of, of thinking through in those cultures what's happening to a person who's having strange or, or unusual experiences. Um, a really good example of this, I think, is given by a, a South African um, clinical psychologist who I heard lecture a few years ago. He, he's not only versed in, in, in clinical psychology, but he's also a, and I can't do the click, so forgive me, but he's also a, Hosa, a member of the Hosa people. And within Hosa, the Hosa tradition,
Hello. Hey, Phil. We dropped out. Yeah, we just lost each other. Okay, so sorry about that. So no, no problem. Yeah, yeah. Is I, this all right? Yeah, no. This is this is fantastic. I just I'm afraid that I'm not. Um, I'm I'm sorry if I'm if I'm not quite helping frame things in a clear way because I know that you were you were going to make a third point previously and then I oh no no it was related you. to your 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 framing of it was really helpful because the the third point was is the role that culture has in shaping our experience okay so let's um let's roll the tape again you were talking about the Zosa people and let's just kind of pick it up where we got interrupted then. So sure. Just, just well, go ahead, well yeah. in the, in the Kosa culture, but if somebody starts to hear voices, it's not it's not um, a um, a moment of shock, horror. Oh my God! Let's get the psychiatrists in. Let's lock this person up because they might be dangerous. But it is actually there is concern, but there's it, there's a very specific way in which it's handled because that experience within that cultural tradition is seen as being evidence that the person has within the shamanic tradition, um, very rare gifts. And so the person actually goes off and studies with a traditional healer, a shaman within the Hosa cultural tradition, and then finds a place, is reaccommodated back into his or her community as a holy healer, as a shaman, as a traditional healer. And, and, and the point is that if you live in a society or culture um, where the tradition is that these experiences have some sort of meaning, have some sort of positive value, then it's not a problem. And you, it's, it's a lot easier for you to be reintegrated back into the society as an esteemed and valued member who can make important contributions to the community that you're living in. And that's so different from, um, with, let's say, Western, uh, most Western um, post-industrial um, societies where we all know what schizophrenia equals the experience of hearing voices equals something that's to be feared and dreaded phil what about other kind of mental health um distress situations like uh, what gets called depression or what gets called uh, anxiety well I, I i think this that exactly the same applies here i i'm doing some work at the moment with colleagues in 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 the university here where i work which is um developing a very simple um, philosophically grounded critique of the whole notion of translation uh, and depression is a really good example you know we um, we have an assumption in the West and this is this reflects what I was saying earlier about the sort of individualized containerized view of the self let's, let's just take two very simple sentences if I say um, sadness is in my heart um, or I say the, the, the sentence, water is in my glass. Now, those two sentences are identical in terms of their structure. If you parse them, if you analyze them, you'd find they're exactly the same. Uh, but of course, we're engaging in very, very different types of what the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein would say were language games when we use those two sentences. Um, if I use the sentence, water is in my glass, I'm making a number of assumptions about the relationship between the sentence and the physical world, um, that there is water in a glass that I can measure the water, I can measure its physical properties, I can measure the impurities in the water, I can measure its temperature, its specific gravity, its viscosity, I can do a whole load of, you know, it, it opens up a whole range of 
possible sorts of things that I can do with, with the water and in the glass. If I say sadness is in my heart, I'm making a serious mistake if I assume, or if anybody else assumes for that matter, that I'm indulging in the same sort of language games. I'm not. I'm using metaphor. that uh, you can't literally see the sadness that is in my heart. You can't actually measure it. You can't actually take it out and put it under a microscope in the way that you could with water. But what psychiatry and psychology have been doing for the last 100 years or so, it's been doing exactly that. It's been deluding itself into believing that it can actually do engage in the same sort of language game um, when somebody says sadness is in my heart. Oh, right, okay, tell us exactly how much. Could you, could you point on this scale and say exactly where it is? And, and also, more than that, can you be a little bit more precise about precisely what sort of sadness are we talking about here? So, you know, there is a real difference in terms of the, the, the types of language we use. Now, if you extend that argument across to different to different languages that we speak for example in the gujarati language that's widely used in in parts of um, northern india um, there is no word for depression depression uh, people use completely different ways of expressing sadness they say my heart is sinking or uh, my body feels heavy they don't talk about um, Sadness being a property of um, of um, an, uh, you know of an individual, it's it, it's expressed in a completely different way. So I I think that there are real problems if we assume that, for example, if we're trying to translate across from English into one of these South Asian languages where there is no word for depression, I think it's a it's a really dangerous assumption to make that we can somehow equate. South Asian idioms of distress, like sinking hearts or whatever, heavy bodies, and say, oh, well, that, that, that's the same as depression, and that therefore means that it relates to the sort of concepts that we have in the West for depression. It does not. It's, it's a, it's, this is what Arthur Kleinman, the, the famous anthropologist, psychiatrist um, at Yale, described as a category fallacy. It's a serious mistake of logical thinking um, to assume that you can you can identify these these expressions or these idioms of distress in one set of languages that somehow relate to to our western concepts of depression when somebody when a gujarati woman says um, in gujarati um, uh, my heart is sinking what does she mean what does she expect um, we use expressions like this not just to communicate to others, but with some sort of assumption about how other people are going to respond to us when we say them. She's not going to expect the people around her to say, gosh, that's sad. You must need some Prozac. Well, what, she, what she expects is something quite different from that. It's, um, it may be, I don't know, um, it may be some sort of spiritual understanding of her experience. It may be some sort of starting point for her to explore her experiences with her her family members in terms of um, what is happening within the family at that particular moment in time within, within family relationships. But I'm pretty sure that, that when people from those cultural traditions use those sorts of expressions, they're not necessarily wanting to, to, to have their bodies filled up with Prozac.
but so then this is this category mistake of trying to see this as an objective measurable individual experience uh, that's exactly what the world psychiatric association and the world health organization and the pharmaceutical companies are doing in trying to sort of spread this um, single standard model of psychiatric care uh, worldwide. Can you talk a little bit more about that and what actually uh, the, the goal is that these... Uh, 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 absolutely. Well, I mean, to begin with, let, let's just go back to dsm 4 because um, if I remember correctly, when people were doing the work, the background work for dsm 4 back in the 1980s... Bill, can you just, for people who maybe don't know, can you say what the dsm 4 is? Uh, sure. I'm, I'm sorry, of course. Um, it stands for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is the uh, American Psychiatric Association's um, uh, standardized way of agreeing the diagnostic criteria for depression, for, you know, for the whole huge, vast array of, um, of distress that people experience and that psychiatrists identify as different types of mental disorders. So um, they, I mean, it's an enormously complex process they go, go through. Um, it's quite literally diagnosis by committee. Um, and of course, it's interesting just as an aside to reflect as to why that is. The reason for this is because there's no independent way of validating um, psychiatric diagnosis. Psychiatry is unlike the rest of general medicine or internal medicine. You know, for blood tests, there are no x-ray tests that confirm the presence of these disorders. So the only way they can do it is by committee to get people to agree what are the main sort of criteria in terms of reported experiences that people bring. But in, it, when they were going through this process 20-odd years ago before the production of dsm 4 15 years ago, um, they actually had um, an a group of anthropologists, very eminent uh, people from uh, McGill um, University, people from other parts of the world who were expert psychiatrists who were duly trained as psychiatrists and anthropologists. I think Arthur Kleinman himself was involved. Lawrence Kermayer from McGill, I think, was involved. And these guys did some really excellent work on looking at the complexities of some, looking exactly at some of the issues I've been referring to. Uh, and they produced a very thorough report about how cultural difference could be taken into account in relation to psychiatric diagnosis, but it was completely sidelined. It was marginalized. And indeed, this was written about in an article, I think, in the Journal of Mental Science about 10, 15 years ago by, by the, these people, and sort of really pointing out how their, their report, or the, 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 the sort of problems that they'd raised about the whole project of psychiatric diagnosis in in transcultural or in cultural terms um, uh, and, and how you could actually sort of try and start thinking your way around some of those problems is completely sidelined. Now, one's left really, of course, having to remember that the, when all this was going on, we were right at the beginning of the decade of the brain, the idea that, um, that you know, clinical neuroscience could reveal the innermost workings of the brain and the human mind and throw open a detailed understanding of psychiatric diagnoses um, and validate those diagnoses across all cultures. Um, and of course, that sort of, that sort of very simple reductionist biomedical view of psychiatric diagnosis really serves primarily, I would 
suggest to you one set of interests, and that is the pharmaceutical industry. Um, because they're the people who have most to gain from um, discovering new so-called causes, conditions like depression and schizophrenia. So this is, a, this is a, an agenda that has been, by and large, very, very subtly managed and um, controlled and um, supported by the world's leading pharmaceutical companies because it's clearly in their interest just as it was in their interests in Yokohama in 2003 to con convince all the psychiatrists who were at this the WPA meeting um, from South Asia, from Southeast Asia, from um, economically disadvantaged countries that this is the way they should be thinking about experiences like depression and anxiety. They should be thinking about them in, in um, clinical neuroscience, scientific terms that actually um, mean it's a lot easier for them to justify prescribing their drugs. Phil, one of the things that um, I've noticed is that often in the U.S., in terms of a diagnosis or in terms of a framework, um, if a patient can get a PTSD or a trauma diagnosis, it, it sometimes it tends to go a little bit better for them um, often because, you know, trauma, the idea is with trauma is that it's really not a disease or an illness, but it's something that happened to you. It's like an injury, an emotional, psychological injury. Um, and so, you know, I think a lot of people who are very progressive and very critical of the mental health system and these disease medical um, labels have been, you know, also very positive on the whole trauma framework and looking at, at trauma and PTSD. But I know that you're, you have a different view of that or, or a view of that in terms of the international context. So can you tell us about, um, you know, looking at PTSD and how it's also part of this globalization? Um, sure. Well, I, I think your points are, are really interesting and, and right on the ball because they take us to a number of really interesting issues. The first issue, which isn't so much a global concern, but it's more of a, I suppose, um, what, what, what your, your point does is to draw attention to the importance of values that around different types of diagnoses that, uh, you know, that, there are, that diagnoses are not facts in the way that, um, I don't know, um, tuberculosis of the right upper lobe of the lung is a fact. The psychiatric diagnoses are evaluatives, i.e. They, they're, they're laden with all sorts of judgments and values. And um, the, 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 the first thing that came to mind when you, you raised this fact was the, 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 the sort of crude distinction that was around in 1960s anti-psychiatry that people like, um, well not so much Lang and his followers but, uh, and his school, but certainly people who followed on in the wake of Lang made a very, um, and indeed perhaps to some extent Lang himself, made a very simplistic comparison, Zaz did too, I think, in some ways, uh, comparison between, on the one hand, bad biomedical psychiatry that gave people diagnoses, and on the other hand, good um, psychoanalytic or psychotherapeutic um, practices, which, um, uh, which were, were seen as kinder, as being less harsh, as, as, as helping people to make sense of their experiences. Um, 
I think, though, stepping back um, to to consider the, the sort of more global um, implications of this, and, and this, I have to say, isn't so much my own work, but, but work that my, my friend and colleague, Pat Bracken, he's a, 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 a job share with, um, with Pat, a post in the University of Central Lancashire. And Pat's written, I mean, Pat spent quite a lot of time in Africa in the 90s in Uganda, working with um, Save the Children, and, and he's developed a very powerful critique of the Western concept of post-traumatic um, stress disorder, uh, using, I suppose, continental philosophy and the, the ideas and the philosophy of uh, the German philosopher Martin Heidegger. And I, I, I mean, I don't... I don't really understand a word of Heidegger, uh, and I wouldn't. I'm not going to go into that. But I think you can reduce Pat's argument to a very simple set of propositions, and and that is that uh, if you look at the way that the World Health Organization and uh, global, what I would call global elites like the World Psychiatric Association, um, are doing in places where there is conflict, is they're exporting the notion of um, post-traumatic stress disorder and the sorts of Western expertise that goes along with that, counselors, psychotherapists, um, cognitive behavioral um, psychology, um, psychiatrists, you know, the emphasis in troubled areas of the world where there is, um, there is great unrest and, and terrible things are happening is let's get the, the guys in, let's, let's, let's get all these experts in to offer the, um, the, the disturbed populations um, preventative psychological therapies to help them process their, their trauma. And the point that Pat makes in his, in, in his book, um, uh, in a couple of his books, is that um, really, if, if you work in the field with people in these communities, the last thing they want is some expert coming along telling them how to process their trauma. What they want are their communities building up. They want um, their, their support, their, their indigenous support networks through their communities building up. They need housing, they need clothing, they need shelter, they need food. Uh, those are much greater priorities uh, than um, the sort of assumptions that, that experts in the West have about what they need, which, is, which are based upon Western assumptions, again, about the notion of self, which I was referring to earlier. So, um, really, and, and I, in, in fact, I think, to be fair, I think that some of the aid organizations now are getting pretty savvy about this, and they're actually beginning, I think, to, to change some of their policies. I have to say, this isn't a particular area of expertise of mine that you need to, to get the, you need to speak to my colleague, Pat, really, to get a, um, a, the definitive view of this. But I yeah, think we actually, we did, um, I was able to interview Pat when I was in um, British Columbia, so we have a... Ah, we have right, you've got yeah. passable, yeah, uh, yeah, I so would defer to Pat's expertise, but, but I think that, that that's the sort, that's the way the argument goes, and I think it's a very powerful argument, and it, it ties in very closely to the sort of work that Pat and I have been doing over the past 10 years, well, on, it's a very, which has been broadly called post-psychiatry. Yeah, it's very... You know, and I, I have to give a plug for post-psychiatry. Absolutely. It's a, it's a book that you and Pat wrote, and I want to talk about that in a little bit. Um, but I think it's, it's a general... I mean, maybe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is a general... It's a kind of a critique of the idea of techno more technology is good 
that we have in the West, we have this idea that, okay, we have these technologies and everybody wants them, whether it's the automobile or pesticide-resistant um, uh, seeds or whether it's psychotherapy and pills and pharmaceuticals and diagnoses and uh, psychiatry. And I think what's challenging and difficult is to imagine that poor um, poor or poorer societies, countries that, that are outside of kind of the rich um, West, um, that actually they, it's not about catching up. It's not about, well, we want to have the same mental health system that the United States or Canada or Britain has, or we want to have, or we want our citizens to have the same levels of Ritalin and Prozac and um, uh, Zyprexa <laughs> consumption. And it's that, in fact, that there's a third way. And I'm, I'm just wondering, if, is, that an, is that an apt comparison, the sort of the idea that actually it's not about equal, equalization access to mental health services, it's about, about reconsidering what mental health is entirely? I, 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 I think that's exactly right with a caveat. And the caveat that is that even before we get to the point, if you're talking about comparisons between the economically advantaged and the economically disadvantaged, that even before we get to any discussion about um, how one might see mental health shaping up um, from within a critical perspective, that there has to be, um, one has first of all to have resolved the gross um, uh, economic disparities between the two. That, um, well, that's what I sense, think is that's what I think is the agenda here. Is there's an agenda to kind of separate these issues entirely, and on the ground, as you were saying, in an economically disadvantaged country, or even actually anywhere, really, the the separation of mental health and psychiatry concerns from things like housing and food and communities. It just is. It's a false uh, false separation. I, I, I think that's right, and, and I think that um, one first of all has to uh, take very seriously any attempts that are going to rectify the, the wicked disparities that exist between the very rich countries and the very poor. Um, uh, you know, we live on this planet together, and I, I think you, you were hinting a minute ago in the way you were framing your question in a way that I would fully agree with. There are, there are very strong resonances between, I suppose, the sort of ideas that come out of what is broadly called post-psychiatry and other issues such as the green movement. Um, but the question, um, um, the, the whole notion um, that, that is so powerful in the West and which comes, I think, probably from the European Enlightenment, this notion of progress. Uh, and, and that the only way we can make progress, the only way we can improve the world is through advances in science and technology. I, I, would, I would really question that. I, would I think certainly people question it in the green movement and, and argue that instead of looking at improving um, and having, you know, um, uh, I don't know, SO2 scrubbers on power stations, well, that might be a temporary solution, but isn't the real solution about the way we live our lives and the way we use transport? And I would say there's a direct parallel there with mental health that says that the answer to distress isn't about um, bigger and better and more selective drugs aimed at these or those neurotransmitters. It's actually looking at the political influences that that draw us in our lives into distress, that make us feel alienated, and that, you know, 
this is where it can become quite revolutionary and and I think it really is I think it's about questioning the whole sort of order that we've fallen under in the West in terms of um, our relationship to capitalism, our relationship to consumption, our relationship to consumerism, um, our relationship to money. I think all these things um, have very, very powerful influences in shaping our well-being or our lack of well-being. And I think that fundamentally we have to look at changing those rather yeah, than changing our individual yeah, responses um, to them. Yeah, it's very exciting to me because there is this kind of green uh, rethinking that's happening in, in so many different areas of the different kinds of technologies and, ec and economic models that we have. And it just hasn't quite caught up with uh, mental health and and so I'm, I guess I'm wondering that would be a, that would be a potential criticism that you know talking about the ways in which traditional societies and traditional communities are able to care for people better sometimes I mean wouldn't that doesn't that risk uh, romanticizing some of the traditional ways because I know that there often are very brutal and dehumanizing treatment that happens um, for people who are in mental distress and if if it's not about romanticizing and it's not about um, just completely going with the Western way, what would actually a positive way of helping and supporting and creating and promoting um, good community-based mental health, what would that actually uh, look sure. like? I, I think, to, to, first of all, to say that, yes, you're absolutely right to point out that there is a danger here of romanticizing. Don't forget that... Uh, you know, the, the Salem witches um, who were burnt um, would probably be diagnosed as schizophrenic today or MPD or something. But what I would, what I would argue in, instead, which is a point that Pat and I make in the book Post-Psychiatry, um, which is published a couple of years ago, is that, um, yes, technology has brought certain advantages, but it's also brought great disadvantages. And in fact... If you look at the field of what's broadly called mental health, it's arguable that the, the greatest benefits have been brought um, in terms of progress have been brought not through science and technology, but through morals and ethics. And I'm referring specifically here to the sort of insights that were uh, given to us by the Tukes, the Quakers in York at the end of the 18th century who set up the retreat, um, and who and and also um, Philippe Pinel in in um, in Paris who released the chains of the mad in the Salpetriere, and um, the, the whole idea that um, one shouldn't be setting the mad apart from the rest of society, that way lies dehumanization, that way lies ultimately the, the ultimate dehumanization, the, um, the Holocaust in, in the Second World War, um, uh, that the greatest, uh, which was fueled by techno technology and racial science, let's not forget, as Robert J. Liston so ably demonstrates in his, his book, The Nazi Doctors. Um, let's remember that the, uh, some of the most important advances we've made in terms of uh, the way the mad have been treated in society have been realized through um, inclusiveness, through opening, treating them as human beings, treating them with respect, not seeing them as somehow subhuman, which I, I'm afraid to say is how I see psychiatric labels. That's what psychiatric labels do to people. It turns them into non-human beings. 
Um, in terms in terms of the broader sort of global perspective on this, I think that um, the, uh, the, and the, the there is a huge amount of evidence um, uh, that some of the worst and the most um, heartachingly appalling um, abuses of psychiatry are seen when poor countries try to mimic the type of Western systems of excellence. Um, uh, uh, my colleague Chris Heggenbotham here at the Institute for Philosophy, Diversity and Mental Health, um, we, we all gave us, um, a, this is a couple of weeks ago, we had to give our professorial lectures. Um, Chris, Chris's lectures was, was the most powerful one. He hardly said anything. He just put a whole series of slides up of um, the appalling situations in which um, um, asylum inmates in some of the um, former East Soviet bloc countries are being kept in, in places like Romania and Bulgaria. Um, you, you only have to visit an asylum in a poor country to realize this is the most appalling way to treat human beings. And this is, this is the attempt to introduce Western notions of progress, Western notions of technology into poor countries. Um, so I would really um, very, very strongly question the whole idea that by giving um, our notions of excellence of science and technology um, in, in the field of mental health in the form of psychiatry to the economically disadvantaged countries is going to improve the situation. I would very, very strongly argue that that's not going to be so. And so the question then arises, what is the answer? And I, th I think the answer it has to come from a completely different way of thinking about um, how we um, understand ourselves as human beings, not in a way that's um, encouraged, encourages people to think from a top down, i.e. from the basis for my position as an expert, knowing psychiatry as I do, knowing what I know about psychology and psychiatry, but which turns that on its head and which engages and works with people in local communities, however, in whichever way you wish to define local communities, and I accept that there are many, many different ways of doing this, but actually opens up the opportunity for people in local, at, at, the, at a grassroots level, working within villages, within local communities, um, to be able to say for themselves how they think these problems first of all should be interpreted and understood and then secondly what sort of responses um, those understandings demand. Phil we don't have a lot of time left but I wanted to ask you how um, how hopeful are you for the future do you find these ideas getting some reception are you I know you do a lot of traveling and you're connected internationally do you find that there are people around the world who are really starting to understand this and push in this direction because the you know the, the forces of globalization and and capitalism and pharmaceutical expansion are pretty pretty huge and powerful so what's your sense of of the receptivity and and what kind of hopefulness do you have i i feel i feel immensely hopeful about the future because wherever i go and you know you and you guys at the freedom center and the Icarus Project, places like that. There's some fantastic work taking place at the moment in the States, which exemplifies this, which is about 
ordinary people coming together, you know, whether they're communities of interest like survivors are, or whether they're specific communities in the village or faith communities, and are questioning the rights um, of powerful elites um, to determine the way they should think about themselves. And, and that, to me, is just immensely liberating and exciting. It's about the, the, the opening up of spaces and interstices where dissent and um, um, dissent and new ways of thinking about ourselves can emerge. Um, Rufus May, who I think you've also interviewed, is doing the same. It, this isn't something that just applies to people from what in Britain we'd call black and minority ethnic communities, um, people of color, as you might say, in, in, the, in the US, but it applies to everybody. And, and I, I just feel um, everywhere I go these days, I bump into people who are doing fantastic work in local communities through the processes of community development, which we haven't got time to go into, but which I'm a staunch advocate of. Um, I, it just fills me with a great deal of hope that um, the, the whole monolithic structures of power that are enshrined in psychiatry and through the, the sort of professional elites, the World Health Organization, WPA and so forth, that um, they're, they're not being undermined. I wouldn't put it as, as, as powerfully as that, but I think they're being shaken from the roots, from their very foundations by these voices now that are beginning to emerge. And that, that fills me with joy. Great. Well, thanks a lot for joining us today, Phil Thomas. My pleasure. Thank you, Will, and carry on all your fantastic work over there. You've been listening to an interview with Dr. Philip Thomas, who is a critical psychiatrist based in England. He is the author with Pat Bracken of Post-Psychiatry Mental Health in a Postmodern World. And you can get in touch uh, with Phil through email, and the email address is pfthomas, P-F-T-H-O-M-A-S, P.F. Thomas at UCLAN, U-C-L-A-N dot A-C dot U-K. There's also a lot of stuff that Phil has um, written and a lot of information about him on the Internet. Just um, Google Phil Thomas or Philip Thomas Psychiatry, and you should be able to find it. That's about all the time we have this week. Thanks a lot for tuning in. been listening to madness radio voices and visions from outside mental health madness radio is broadcast every wednesday 6 to 7 p.m eastern standard time on pacifica affiliate wxojlp fm 103.3 valley free radio in northampton massachusetts for our live internet stream podcasting show archives and more visit madnessradio.net madness radio is co-produced by freedom center and the icarus project For more information, check out freedom-center.org and theicarusproject.net. For more mental health radio, listen to the news hour from mindfreedom.org, Wednesdays, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, or you just want to share what's in your head, contact us at radio at madnessradio.net.